Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. Discerninghearts.com presents Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. Dr. Fagerberg is a professor of liturgical theology at the University of Notre Dame. He holds an MA from St. John's University, Collegeville, and an STM from Yale Divinity School, and a PhD from Yale University. His books include Theological Prima, On Liturgical Asceticism, Consecrating the World, Liturgical Mysticism, and Liturgical Dogmatics. Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Yeah, as you were pointing out, Francis, and you brought us to the the figure we know so well because she was so documented. We saw her so often, her whole life. Cameras were on her all the time. So you you saw her almost for a whole day, for a whole week. We could track her. The thing about Mother Teresa, as it was for Dorothy Day, as it was for Fulton Sheen, as it was for John Paul, every day they began their day in adoration. Uh-huh. They had to be fed by something. They had to give, but they, and they, but they had to receive. There is something in that relationship, as you spoke of, there's something that uh, all four are so different. All four acted in such different ways that, diff- as you said, that on their journey to holiness. And yet it all had that same component. Isn't that remarkable? Doing uh, service to the world, charity to my neighbor, without liturgical uh, life, sacramental life, adoration, would be like exhaling without ever inhaling. And now I'm going to address the world, and I'm going to solve the world's problems, and I'm going to be busy in the world, and I'm going to be... (laughs) How can you uh, exhale if you don't take pause to inhale? I think it was Catherine de Hewick doherty the Baroness, founded the Madonna Houses, and she was a great one of prayer, too. But she would say, even to go out and do that work, and I'm paraphrasing her, essentially, the, the poor, all it is is social work, yeah. patrimony. It, it's not an engagement with Christ yeah. unless you have encountered, and it flows from that communion with Christ. Does that make sense? It does. And it, all the spiritual writers talk about it. Nobody talks only about spirituality. It's always spirituality that then issues in charity. In that worship, what we give, sometimes there's a danger, isn't there, that what we give, we worship that in some ways, the action, the movement, as opposed to who is inspiring that action, who is bringing forth that movement. Our gaze moves, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, Someone I'm reading now described... Oh, what would she call it? Uh, Lukewarm versus uh, spirit-heated spirituality by saying in lukewarm prayer, there's still enough of the ego that we don't actually talk to Christ. We tell him what we think of him. There's a joke from a movie once. So, well, that's enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? (laughs) uh, Yeah, that's the way our prayer actually goes. Uh, This is what uh, she'd never seen the movie wrote this book in the 1930s, but that's what she's saying. We uh, make our prayer 
by telling God about ourselves, what we think of Jesus. We don't listen to what he thinks of us. I had a course from Godfrey Diekman at St. John's, and he said in a side crack that the reason the uh, Psalms are so important in Christian prayer is because the Psalms are God talking to Christ, God talking about Christ, Christ talking about his Father, Christ talking to his Father, us talking to Christ, us talking to Christ about the Father, the Father talking to us about Christ, you can just go, draw your lines across your piece of paper that way. There's this constant communion, communication. But our prayer life, our spiritual life may not have the impact either inside or outside, either in our own growth and deification or in our acts of charity to our neighbor, because we're not really in communion with Christ. We're in communion with ourselves. There's a self-esteem and a self-love. Well, that sounds like asceticism is required to break the old Adam, to break the habits of the old Adam. Uh, this is where it, it, what happens. You don't need to go to a desert to do, the, to do that. You need to be self-aware. Yeah, I think it was Teresa of Avila, the, the beauty of self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that's the heart of humility, isn't it? Yes, the uh, odd thing is that we can sometimes be proud of our humility. <laughs> our self-knowledge makes right. us more vainglorious. I have a couple of lines that I'm proud of having written, and this is one of them. Uh, so long as there is this uh, old Adam ego, humility will feel like humiliation. Mm. And if you wake up in the morning with a, a Christian smile and say, dear God, I'd like to become more humble today, he'll accommodate you. There will be humiliations. Oh, I didn't mean to say that. Oh, I meant to hold my tongue. Oh, I'm not even, I'm going to fact my It's humiliating. Yes. Uh, that's what it is to carry these crosses. To be nailed with Jesus to the cross is for you to die to yourself, to your sin. This is an ego like healthy ego strength. This is like uh, me first, myself second, or there's anything left, I'll take it. This is uh, God is my servant rather than m- me being his servant. I think that's the call then to worship. I'm bringing it back around to that. But I mean, to worship and even how we understand what that is, I think we're confused. There's a line that we cross too often. I speak from my own experience. Do I love the Blessed Virgin more than I love Jesus? Do I love my church building more than I love whatever that might be? Uh, Do I love loving my church building? (laughs) Yeah. Satisfaction out of my satisfaction. Exactly. Do you know where I'm going with that? The uh, root of the word worship is a old Anglo-Saxon, I'm told, I read, worthship. You worship that which you give worth to. Mm-hmm. And to quote a fellow who was once uh, famous but has fallen from sight, which is why I never try to keep up on theologians because I figure they're going to fall out of sight in the next 10 years. <laughs> Paul Tillich, worthship, your God is your object of ultimate concern. That's not a bad definition. I imagine that a uh, an alcoholic knows what his God is, what is his object of ultimate concern when he wakes up in the morning. What's your object of ultimate concern? John Cavadini here on campus says to the students, if we don't fear God, what do we fear? 
because you're going to fear something. There's something to which you will bend the knee, around which you will build your life, that will be your object of concern. It's so hard to make God the object of ultimate concern because he's invisible. But maybe he's not. But that would be, require taking the world with reference to him. The uh, Greeks had two words for reverence or adoration. And acknowledging a distinction between the two words helps us make our helps us purify our worship. I think that's what we're after here. I got tapped in on these two words in an article by one of my mentors in graduate school named Paul Holmer. Holmer was a Lutheran from Lake Wobegoni in Stock, and he taught me uh, Kierkegaard and Wittgenstein and some Lewis. His uh, topic was vices and virtues, but it was about the formation of the human subject, the person. He wrote an article entitled About Liturgy and Its Logic way back in 1976, which dates my uh, graduate studies. And he has this quotation, it's not as if God is changing so rapidly that new material has to be inserted into the liturgy just to keep up with him. If the liturgy were totally or even significantly culturally dependent, then we could say that it would need continual revision. For with a changing material, the form would have to be different too. But liturgy is not an expression of how people see things. Rather, it proposes instead how God sees all people. That was a very nice sentence. My doctor father and mentor, Aidan Kavanaugh, said once, well, Homer got it right in this article. Well, he did, so I had to run out and find the article to impress my teacher. Liturgy is not an expression of how people see things. It proposes instead how God sees all people. From that, Homer concludes that liturgy has a kind of formality. But he doesn't mean formal like my online thesaurus offers me, stuffy, prim, stiff. He means formal in the sense of a form of life, a morphology, creating a form of life, what Wittgenstein called a grammar, and that's what he was teaching me in this other course. There's a thing you want to say, and grammar allows you to say it. There's a thing you want to do, and formality sets a boundary around it so that it can be done. In that sense, games are formal. You can dribble a basketball on a checkerboard if you want, but it's going to change the game into a different experience. There are rules for how to do it. Out my window, I can see the Notre Dame Stadium, and there are rules in that stadium. You can't take the football and run out one exit and come in the other entrance and say you hit a touchdown. You've got to stay inside these boundary lines. Well, there are rules to life. Families are formal because there's a structure to the family of reading Goodnight Moon and having dinner together and packing them in a car to drive to the Grand Canyon. The RCIA exists in order to develop this grammar of life, to in impose, uh, invite into, to bring about a grammar of life, a rule of life. So Kavanaugh used to say in class, I don't go to Mass because I'm Catholic. I'm Catholic because I go to Mass. Liturgy has this kind of formative power upon us. It should. It should have this kind. Lots of scholars have enjoyed researching this formative power of ritual. I just think that ritual without a theological content does not a liturgy make. So I want to know how the theology of liturgy 
manages this. Lewis has a article in which he describes a fairy tale, which I've never found, unfortunately, of, of a man who is so ugly that he wears a mask to hide his ugliness all his life long. And when he dies and they remove the mask, his face has grown to fit the mask. And he's now become handsome. Well, there's my picture of putting on liturgy each day, wearing liturgy on our face so that our face would fit that liturgy. Well, what is it that we're fitting? We're fitting God's vision of us. So that, Homer says, is why liturgy is formal. But there's more. There's more to it. Liturgy is formal for an additional reason than simply the reason that the Kiwanis Club has a formality and there's a ritual to do. Liturgy's form comes from the fact that God is God. It's uh, striving to conform us to God's grammar, to God's speech, to the logos of God. Bingo, second person of the Trinity, the incarnate one. He conforms us to the logos of God. And the Greeks gave us a clue with a distinction between their two words. They are dulia and latria. Dulia means uh, homage or reverence or respect. You uh, pay dulia to distinguished persons or even places. The Archangel Gabriel gets dulia. St. Augustine gets dulia. Mother Teresa gets dulia. The Grotto at Notre Dame gets dulia. Latria is different from dulia, and I don't know if I can give it a single English word, so instead I'll give it a description. Latria is what we give God and only God because he is God. You can give dulia to the emperor, but you must give latria to God. And you ought not to give latria to the emperor, because that would be giving latria to something other than God, to an image of God, to something lesser than God, which in Greek was the word eidolone. And that's where the word idolatry comes from. Eidos latreia is giving latreia to something other than God. That's why it's a fighting words to talk about for Protestants to accuse Catholics of mariolatry or Catholics to accuse Protestants of bibliolatry. You shouldn't give Latria to either Mary or to the scripture. Only God gets Latria. So Homer concludes, it's as if God being what he is, therefore all of us must be worshipful. What posture should I stand in before God? Worship, adoration, praise, Eucharist. The only choice in life is between Latria and idolatry. For Christians, Homer writes, the kind of worship indeed had to be decided upon, but it didn't depend upon how the subject felt about the emperor or about God. For Dulia does not differ from Latria by degree, it differs in kind, and the difference is determined by the objectivities involved. One is a creature, even if a mighty emperor, but the other is God. And so Homer writes, the object, not the subject, calls forth the proper kind of worship. Because God is God, therefore, liturgy. We'll return to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fackerberg in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app 
in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming, Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. Homer thinks a kind of restlessness would result if liturgy were only dulia, because liturgy then would be an expression of how I feel. And I'm always changing in how I feel, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, sometimes closer to God, and then my liturgy would be full of praise and glory and sometimes further away from God. Our liturgy isn't structured or formed. Its formality doesn't come from the worshiper. It comes from the one whom we are worshiping. So Homer says an odd thing about liturgy then is that it has to conform to this God. And if it does not, it can easily become both a folly and an abomination in God's sight. We only have to look at Old Testament prophets to check this. The notion that liturgy, I'm back on Homer again, maybe I'll end after this long quote. The notion that liturgy might be an expression of how people feel is surely not a defensible consideration. The only criterion is not whether it works or whether it turns people on. In fact, if it did, it might be a little dubious, for getting turned on is an expression that belongs to old glory, to sex, to heroics, to childhood memories even to the boisterous hallelujah chorus as we encounter it. But it would be odd to say that Christian worship and liturgy are only stimulating or expressive. For worship requires 
not that one like the liturgy, but that one come to abide in himself, in God himself. Better read that again since I butchered the last two words. For worship requires not that one like the liturgy, but that one come to abide in God himself. To worship God requires that one really worship him and not get engrossed in the liturgy. The liturgy gets its legitimacy and point from the fact that God requires an offering, enjoins contrition and repentance, promises a pardon, and proffers redemption. But this only makes sense because there is a God whose will is our law, whose pardon is our renewed life, and whose mercy reads our very hearts. So i just summarize the point that I'm trying to make. Insofar as our latria must be fitted to God, therefore it's God who determines the contours of our worship. And our worships can differ in style, but not in the kind of form that Homer's talking about. There can be a difference in the style of a Latin liturgy and a Byzantine liturgy, but the latria must be fitted to God. Because there is a God whose will is our law, there's a God whose will is the law of our prayer. He determines the lex of our orandi. Liturgy is where we go to learn to know God. It's where we learn how to know God. We know God from the posture on our knees. If I went to the Queen of England and slapped her on the back and said, Hello, Queenie, I guess you would think that I don't really know what the Queen of England is. I, this would be a wrong relationship. Liturgy, then, is like the grammar within which sentences take form, the logic within which meaning takes form, and the rules within which life takes form. There's an abiding lex orande, and its purpose is to make us into liturgical people. And that's why I uh, started my career such as it's been, trying to connect lex orande with lex credendi. Liturgy gives rise to primary theology. There's also a secondary theology which examines liturgy, and they read books and do history and uh, examine the ritual. But Mrs. Murphy is a theologian because she's been formed by this liturgy. It has informed her. Not just informed her, but informed her. There's a hyphen in my pronunciation if our listeners can hear it. I'll finish up here on this point by recourse to C.S. Lewis. In the Chronicles of Narnia, in The Horse and His Boy, a uh, horse named Huyn meets Aslan for the first time. And when she trots up to the line, she's, Lewis says she's shaking all over with fear. And she says, please, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. To me, that's the source of ascetical mysticism. We would sooner be eaten by God than fed by anything that the world could offer us. Fame, power, education, uh, honor, esteem. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. And why? Because you're so beautiful. If Huynh had approached, the uh, horse had approached in some other way, with some other attitude, it would have been because she had mistaken Aslan for an ordinary lion. It's Aslan, not Huynh, who discovered determines what her proper behavior should be. And if I don't create my own idolatry, if I'm not to create my own idol, then I must trot up to God with Latria and with nothing else. So this is like one of the ways in which I think the 
thin definition of liturgy thickens into this deeper notion of liturgy for which I use the word liturgia. When you take a Greek word, it's uh, empty, and so you can fill the boxcar with the meaning you want it to have. And liturgia is this thicker understanding. Our words, that our words have meaning. To really understand the fact that as God spoke into us, a word broke into salvation history with his word, Mm -hmm. and all contained within the person of Christ Jesus. It's all there. And even as that latria that you spoke of, that word gives it our latria, the structure, the, the movement, everything in that, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. It's why our liturgy is us conforming to Christ's liturgy before his Father, which is exactly the way um, Pius XII defined liturgy. Paragraph 20 of Mediator Dei, my favorite The sacred liturgy is the public worship which our Redeemer, as head of the church, renders to the Father. What's liturgy? It's what the Son renders to the Father. Oh, as well as the worship that the community of the faithful renders to its founder. Yeah, okay, so it's also what we render to Christ. And through him to the Heavenly Father. So now he's named three arrows, trajectories of liturgy. It's from the Son to the Father. It's from us to the Son incarnate. And it's from us through the Son incarnate to the Father. So Pius XII summarizes, it is in short the worship rendered by the mystical body of Christ in the entirety of its head and members. The members must conform to the head. Our words, our logoi, must conform to his word, the logos. Otherwise, liturgy is just an expression of how we see things. And I might as well sleep in on Sunday morning. I already know how I see things. I'd like to go someplace and have God give his sight to me. Liturgy is not just seeing things. It is being given eyes with which to see things. Liturgy, well, Gregory Nyssa describes a Christian as somebody who has the eye of the dove. The Holy Spirit being the dove has the eye of the dove. We begin with eyes that are blurred over by the cataracts of sin. When the cataracts have been removed, washed away, like we've uh, burned our eyes with a chemical and the baptismal font is standing by, uh, break glass to wash eyes, to clear your eyes. And then the light of Mount Tabor is put in our eyes, and with that light we can see the world differently. We can see the world the way it was meant to be seen so that we could do the world the way it was meant to be done, as Eucharist, and not as avarice, gluttony, envy, lust, passionately. The purpose of liturgy is to lead to our deification, which doesn't pluck us out of the world yet. It lets us see and do the world correctly, because the form, the light, the light of Mount Tabor, the deifying light, is now within us. When Ambrose writes about his catechumens having gone through the baptismal font and now coming out as brand new neophytes, he says, how beautiful the church is in them. And there's a flip of grammar. He's not talking about them going into the church. He's saying in baptism, the church enters into them. And now they see the world with different eyes. 
that's the uh, witness that Christians give. Uh, why don't you react the same way that these others don't? Well, I don't see it that way. I see this occasion in the light of heaven. Why don't you grieve like others do? Well, we don't grieve without hope. Uh, why aren't you crushed when uh, you were passed over for this promotion? Well, it's not the most important thing in my life. There, I have a Latria. I, I'm not giving Latria to this accomplishment. I, I have somebody, uh, another object for the Latria. We all have little uh, taste and instance of that, right? Uh, when you first fall in love, things that were the most important to you uh, now kind of disappear. I watched my son love to play hours of, I'm trying to remember which gaming system he had, a PlayStation, I think. And he got married and still played a little bit. Then they had kids and the PlayStation is in the attic somewhere. <laughs> Sorry, kids, I can't play with you or read your stories right now. The uh, PlayStation is the most important thing in my life. Well, your lifelong process is God drawing you forward by one good only to have you drop it because there's another greater good, only to have you drop it so there's another greater good. And this is uh, something that C.S. Lewis and Charles Williams talk about under their category of romantic theology. Uh, this was uh, something that gave rise to my notions in uh, consecrating the world. There's nothing wrong with money, sex, or beer, but you drop them to move to a greater good. We've all experienced it at one point. Why can't we experience it later? We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Fagerberg in our next episode. You've been listening to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com And join us next time for Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fackerberg.